It does matter what we believe. And I thank the Lord for a church where questions about what we believe and our message are some of the first questions you ask. I lead the Newcomer's Lighthouse, uh, and one of the first questions that typically they ask about is, well, what are your beliefs? I'm thankful that that's their questions and not perhaps, well, um, you know, what, what's on the rotation for snacks at the cafe? You know, our message and the doctrine really matters. It's been that way for centuries, by the way, and the church has been charged with the task of protecting sound doctrine. In your mind, go back with me to 325 A.D. It's when the Council of Nicene met and up for grabs was doctrine. Athanasius was a young deacon at that council. He was watching the church fathers and the bishops make decisions about how certain parts of this would be interpreted. And on the opposing side was one of those church leaders. His name was Arius. And he had been proposing and leading people astray to believe this, that Jesus was more than a man. Yes, but he wasn't fully God. He was kind of somewhere in between. And so he took a, a word that was in church doctrine. I'm going to ask the guys who are running our screen to go to one of the last slides. They'll see these two words compare. I'm kind of changing things up here this morning a little bit. He took a word that means of the same substance. It's the bottom word there. Homoousion. And he changed one letter. He put an I in the middle of a word that the church had founded its belief upon, had knew the incarnation of Jesus mattered. He was fully God. He was fully man. Two natures in one being. He said, well, he's somewhat in between that. And he just put a simple I in the word. And so the word became and the doctrine suddenly was up for grabs that Christ was of like substance. If you've read about the Council of Nicene for three days, the church fathers debated, met and argued over one letter. Aren't you glad that at the end of those three days, they excommunicated Arius and said, we will not allow an eye into our doctrine. He was the very same substance as God. He was God in human flesh. And Arius was excommunicated and Athanasius grew up watching that and became a real defender of the faith as well years later. You see, folks, things like that aren't often uh, Repeated, but it's those kinds of things that the church must regularly and repeatedly do in order to accomplish the task of guarding sound doctrine. It started even back before 325. It started back in 62 AD when Paul wrote to Timothy a very organizational and doctrinal letter called 1 Timothy. And it was his appeal to Timothy to, to stop false teachers who were actually in the church. So take your Bibles. Turn to 1 Timothy, would you? It is the first letter of three letters known as the pastoral epistles. These are my three favorite books in all of the Bible. I read them on a weekly basis because they are written from one who understood church better than anybody, the Apostle Paul. And they were written to Timothy, his protege. They're called the pastoral epistles. Along with Titus, these three books 
are three of only four books that bear the name of a person in their title. Out of Paul's approximately 13 letters that he wrote, only four have personal names as titles. And these three books, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are also the very last letters he wrote. A few other facts about these books called the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy is the longest and the most organizational. It has more of the the polity feel, shall we say. It it seems to be more about the structure and and corporate side of church. Titus is the, the shortest and most succinct. And 2 Timothy is the most personal. And if you're looking for some insight into the Apostle Paul's um, chest cavity, if you want to see what he felt most of the time, read 2 Timothy. It drips with the personality and passion and emotion of the Apostle Paul. It's probably his very last letter before he experienced that martyrdom. So these three letters comprise the pastoral epistles. And they were written to Timothy in order that he might understand what it really meant to have church. In other words, he, he said, Timothy, here's what you've got to do and teach, and here's what's got to happen to say that you've got church. Thus, the, series of our, the title of our series, Got Church. We're going to find between now and the end of November, do we got church? Pardon English. I mean, or are we just kind of involved in some man's, man-made idea? Are we involved in just a good club notion? Are we just kind of following some, some uh, you know, uh, feeling that we have and we all get together? Or are we really following a God-driven, inspired uh, by Scripture, fundamental thought to the operation of believers called church? It's the called out ones. Why are we afraid of that word? Somebody said, well, it almost sounds like religion. Listen, God thought of the word. It means called at once, assembly. We are His church, His body. We're going to find out over the next several weeks, do we got? Amen? I trust that you will not worry about my English, but you'll let the Word of God begin to mold us and change us as we examine these pastoral epistles, especially 1 Timothy. So take your Bibles. You're there at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's dive in right off the bat where Paul does. He wastes no time... And explain to Timothy what matters most in this uh, church that he's pastoring. I'll explain more about Timothy and Paul as we move forward. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Interesting that he uses the word hope here. Uh, That word's not mentioned very much in Paul's letters as far as the introductory word at least. I think it's fitting that he would mention this word to Timothy, who probably was somewhat of a timid fellow. He seemed to struggle with confidence. So it's interesting that Paul would say, listen, Timothy, you just need to stand fast on the hope that we have. A very positive sounding word. Amen. And it is. Hope in the Bible is a confidence, not just much of as, as it's not a wish at all. It's, it's something we know is going to happen. And he says, Timothy, Christ is our hope. He starts off on a very positive note. He says, this is to Timothy, my true son of the faith. Only one of two people that he calls a true son. The other one's Titus. So it must mean that somewhere in Paul's ministry, he had the privilege of not just explaining the gospel to Timothy and Titus and leading them to faith, but probably mentoring them and seeing them grow and develop into uh, fellow pastors as well. 
He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Now, let's not miss that phrase. Apparently, they had either been ministering in Ephesus together or on their way through Ephesus. And Paul was encouraging Timothy not to leave, but to stay there. The implication being that Timothy must have wanted to get out of town. Are you with me? And there's good reason for that. It's in the word Ephesus. Now, obviously, you can look in the next few verses and see that the sound, that false teachers were present. So that was probably somewhat intimidating. But I want to explain to you that Ephesus wasn't exactly the easiest place to minister. It was the hometown of the mythological goddess Diana, who was the goddess of sex and love. It would be similar to me saying to maybe one of our young and up-and-coming elders here who may perhaps feel called to ministry and is looking to, to enter into the pastorate and saying, Listen, Vegas is calling you. Perhaps we take an exploratory trip to New Orleans during Mardi Gras week. And I say to this elder, listen, New Orleans is calling you. And as easy as Ankeny seems compared to Vegas or New Orleans, it'd be similar to saying, listen, I know it seems like a decadent town. It's a sex-crazed society. Listen, but stay there anyway. Sometimes we have a tendency, don't we, to run to the nicest church with a picket fence and a two-and-a-half car garage, so to speak, don't we, in a neat little town in the community and you know, Ankeny is kind of like that, isn't it? It's just where everybody wants to live. But can I say to you, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only place God works. Amen. Sometimes the darkest places, excuse me, all the time, the darkest places need a light on a hill. We ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters who are involved in churches in places that aren't near as friendly as good old Ankeny. Amen. Some are overseas and other parts of the world. Timothy was in just such a spot. And Paul didn't say, well, Timothy, you ought to get out of there. He said, in fact, the opposite. I urge you to stay. Here's what he's to do now. He says, you're in Ephesus. I'm urging you to stay. Here's why. So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines. Now, the word command here is an interesting word. It means to give an order. It's not the word to encourage or to suggest. What it is, it's the word to command. It means to pass down an order. It's a very military term. And Paul was, was asking Timothy to embrace his apostolic authority. Embrace Paul's apostolic authority. And, and let that be felt in the church. You tell these false teachers to be quiet. You, they should accept this order and not debate it, negotiate it, or evaluate it. It's a done deal. That's just the way it is. So he says, command certain men, and I think the word certain must mean that there maybe weren't a lot, just a few, but sometimes even a few can have a widespread influence, can't they? He says, command these men not to teach false doctrines. And then you might want to circle false doctrines, listen very carefully, because it's explained by the next few words. He says, they are not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It appears that the false doctrine that was being promoted within the church must have consisted of, of myths, man-made ideas, made-up stories, and then genealogies, which might refer to perhaps some Old Testament type of... Um, they were trying to link themselves to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. I'll explain how I got there in a few minutes. But there seems to be a legalistic thread here. 
It may have been some Judaism still around in the church, along with the, the birth of Gnosticism, which is the, the belief that some kind of knowledge gets you closer to God, some kind of secret information. The combination of those two things must have enabled some men probably to, to develop some man-made ideas that they were getting to call Christian doctrine. And it was far from it. It says here that these very things promoted controversies. Look what it says there in verse 4. They promoted controversies. Rather than God's work, which is by faith. Interesting. Watch this, guys. Don't be distracted, okay? God's work or his, his economy, the word work there is administration. The way God does things is by faith, which is implying that the way the false teachers did things with their made-up stories is not by faith, but let's say by works. In other words, man-made versus God-made. And false teaching will always be brought back to this simple truth. That, that they want to find some way that they can do it. False teaching will ultimately come back to how much you can do on your own. But God's works by faith. There's nothing I do. It's all a work of God. And oh, I simply trust Him. Let's read on. Look what he says here. The goal of this command is love. Interesting that in a place where Paul was encouraging Timothy to be bold, and embrace authority and command men to quit teaching. He also says, listen, Paul, listen, Timothy, the goal of this is love. In other words, there's a way to say things clearly and authoritatively and yet kindly. Amen. And here's where love comes from. A pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, notice something, church. Listen very carefully. All three of these qualities are inward. But false teachers who rely on the law or their made up ideas who are involved in legalism, always rely on the outside. There's an awesome contrast here between true sound doctrine and false doctrine. False doctrine always starts on the outside and tries to work its way in, kind of like suntan lotion. You just rub it on and maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll sink in. It's always skin deep. True sound doctrine always starts on the inside and works its way out. Amen? And much of the reason, and perhaps you're here this morning in this boat, much of the reason people that you know have never been able to deal with their core problem, sin, selfishness, greed, and lust, those inner things that there's no religion that can ever deal with that. You can't rub enough religion on to get rid of that stuff. The reason they have not been able to see how their way out of that jungle is because they've only tried false religions and man-made ideas. They've never turned to the true doctrine, the gospel of Jesus, which is by faith. Are you with me? What an awesome contrast. And Paul's here saying, listen, the love that, that this command comes from, well, the love even comes from these three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. It's these things that the false teachers have wandered away from, verse 6 says. Look at there. They've wandered away from these. And they have instead turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law. But they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Interesting phrase there. I think those false teachers in Ephesus who were probably in the church were acting the exact opposite of Timothy. You know, Timothy probably was struggling with confidence. He was a young pastor. He was in a sexualized and secularized society. And he probably just was really felt like, man, can I, am I up to this? Well, the false teachers prayed on that. And they're like, well, Timothy, if you're not up to it, we are. And they would prance around and show themselves strong. And they would puff up their chest. They were overconfident in the flesh. Timothy was struggling to be rightfully confident in the spirit. 
And it led to a situation where the church was probably at, at best, you know, wondering which is right, which is wrong. Now, understand something. You may think, man, Todd, there were false teachers in the church. Even if there were a few, you bet there were. And Paul had actually predicted this. He had prophesied this would happen. You ought to read Acts 20. Acts 20, Paul is actually in a town with the Ephesian elders. And at that point, they were all right with him on the doctrine. But he said to them, he said, you watch over your flock because from among your own number, listen to this, some will rise and give way to false teaching. I think Paul in Acts 20 predicts what he writes in 1 Timothy 1. It's amazing, isn't it? So sure enough, he writes now to Timothy, who's now got to deal with these men, who I think he mentions two of them later on in chapter 1. Their names are Hymenaeus and Alexander, which if you're afraid to call names in church, I guess Paul took care of that one too, didn't he? Paul said, listen, you've got to deal with these false teachers, Timothy. You've got to stay true to what's right in the core doctrines as we've been, as they've been revealed to us. You can't let false teachers just prey on our people. Now, verses 8 and forward kind of give us some more clue into what they were teaching. Look what it says here. We know that the law is good. Now, with that, he begins to dismantle them very logically because they were saying the law is good, but for the wrong reason. It says here, the law is good if one uses it properly. He kind of suddenly agrees with them a little bit. He says, hey, the law is good if you use it properly. They were using it improperly. Notice what he says here. Watch this. He says, we also know the law is made not for the righteous. So they were saying the law was for the righteous. In other words, here's what false teachers were saying. You can't be righteous without the law. In other words, to be right with God, the law's got to have something to do with it. There's got to be something you do in order for God to say thumbs up to you. For God to say you're okay, there's got to be an element of law that's part of this. That's that streak of Judaism mixed with Gnosticism that was combining together to create havoc in this church. And Paul said, listen, you're using the, wrong, the law wrongly. The law has a, good, has a, a proper effect. But the proper effect is not to show us how righteous we are. But to show us what? How unrighteous we are. That's why Paul begins to list in the next few verses all the, and I'll use this word, the bad things going on in our lives. I mean, how many of you have read the law and never felt good about yourself? I didn't think so. How many of you drive down the road, you see that white sign with the two black numbers, 5-5 five, five, or 2-5 or 3-5, and you look down at your speedometer and you feel good about yourself? Very rarely, Right? Most of us don't read the law to think, man, am I doing good. Most of us read the law and think, wow, i got a long way to go. The law only reveals our unworthiness. And the false teachers were using the law to try to show how righteous they were. Folks, can we just make this very plain and clear this morning? There is none righteous. No, not even one. There are none that seek after God. All of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on himself the iniquity of us all. That's from the prophet Isaiah. And he explained in no uncertain terms the truth of the gospel. That you know what? The law only shows me how far away I am. But we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah, church. That's the gospel. And see what Paul does here now is he begins to explain the proper use of the law. He says, listen, the law is good, but not to show you how good you are, only to show you how bad you are. Look what he does here. Hang on. We're going to get a little negative for a little bit. 
He says the law is um, not made for righteousness, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. In those first three phrases, he, I think, references the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. Now, listen very carefully. I think as you watch these next few verses, you're going to see that Paul actually talks a lot about the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which is why I think he doesn't mention the phrase Ten Commandments, but he, mentions, he does reference the, uh, them by inference. And I think what he does is he's showing that the false teachers were believing in some way. We don't have any information here to work with specifically. But in some way they were trying to use the Ten Commandments to show that they could be right with God or maybe to connect themselves to maybe the patriarchs or perhaps to Moses. There was some way in which these false teachers were trying to develop myths and genealogies that had to do with the Ten Commandments in some way, I believe. Here's why. Look what he says. He talks about the first three commandments, which are God-directed, aren't they? The first three commandments are very, are very vertical. He says the law is made for folks who break those vertical commands, shall we say. Now look at the next few verses. He says for those who kill their fathers and mothers. That's the fifth commandment right there. He gets very horizontal suddenly. For murderers, the sixth commandment. For adulterers and perverts, the seventh commandment. And then eight, nine, and ten are categorized under slave traders, liars, and perjurers. And slave traders can easily be translated kidnappers, which is probably how that happened in that day. So here he talks about things that, that show us not how good we are, how the Ten Commandments don't say, well, man, I'm really matching up. whoop de doo It shows us how bad we are. Amen? When the law does that, listen very carefully, church, when the law does that, it's used properly. Because it sets us up for what he talks about next. Look what he says next. He says, anything that's contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, the law just shows us that we are far from anything that God established. And then verse 11, watch this awesome verse. He says, anything contrary to sound doctrine. This phrase now is going to explain sound doctrine. Conforming to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. That's the good news. The gospel is good news. In fact, you know, literally, the word gospel means good news. And in these last two or three verses, Paul says, here's the bad news. If you hold the law up, you're history. But there's the sound doctrine that God entrusted to me, Paul says. And it is conform- it's conformed to the glorious gospel. In other words, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And when all else seems lost, guess who comes on the scene? Jesus Christ the Savior. Amen? And He saves. Folks, listen very carefully, First Family. You need the good news and the bad news. You see, we're in a society where we want only the good news. But last time I checked, good news isn't good news unless you know what it's set against. And it's good news because there's some bad news. We have no chance. We have no hope. Only Jesus saves. But that's the glorious hope of the gospel. That he does save. This morning, I hope that you've not fallen prey to perhaps false doctrine. Which perhaps in in this culture may appear to be like only good news as well. Or maybe it has a stroke of Gnosticism in it. Remember the book, The Secret? There's a certain element of information that's only available if if you do certain things. False doctrines creeping in. We've got to be careful. Jesus Christ is fully God 
He lived in time and space, was a physical being. He died on a cross in a historical place called Golgotha. He was fully God, fully man. And only Jesus saves. That's the gospel. And only the gospel rescues me from the bad news of the law. Amen, church? That's what Paul's laying out as first and foremost in the church. And we've got to get that message right. Notice Paul didn't talk first about how to organize the church office. Paul didn't talk about how to make sure the cafe runs smooth. He didn't make sure he had a youth ministry or what kind of songs to sing. Paul's first and foremost uh, target. What was in his crosshairs was the message. You know why? Listen very carefully. Because the message matters. In fact, just jot this simple phrase down, would you? The message matters. Just a simple way to kind of sum up these first 11 verses. While you're writing that down, I want to encourage you with this thought. Listen very carefully. We're in a culture where what you say isn't near as important as how you say it or when you say it. You realize that, don't you? Just watch the elections. Everything hinges upon how you say something, what you wear, what the backdrop is, whether it's Greek columns or some elementary school. I mean, everything's in the how and the when and, and the timing of when you reveal your announcements. There's not a whole lot into the, into the content, and that is a sad commentary. And the churches fall and pray. There's too many churches falling uh, to the notion that how we deliver it and when we deliver it is more important than the what. Now, listen, I'm not one. I don't favor rudeness or unkindness at all. But I will tell you this, more important then how and when is the what? We've got to get the message right. The message matters. Now, before I move to apply this for a couple of points, I'll be real quick in a few minutes. I just want to ask if you have any questions about the text. Anyone here, I know some of you are busy, you may think, whoa, he's taking questions live. But we've been doing that most of the summer. Does anyone have a question or two about the actual text here before we... Make a few applications and we're done. Anyone at all have a question or two about the, the text at all? Take a minute here to answer or at least help. Maybe say, I don't know. We'll see how that works. But anyone got a question? A couple in the first service. We'll make sure we give you an opportunity to ask a few questions. Okay, great. If you have someone you're just afraid to ask, I'll be available afterwards. We can chat about those. Let's make some applications then. Since the message really matters, what do we do? What do we do next? Write down a couple of thoughts here, okay? First of all, the message matters because it brings meaning to a church, okay? There's a key word here, and it's the word content. And it's set over against what I would say is indicative of false teaching, and that's the word shallow. You see, the message of the church is a message of content. It's not a message that is made up of, of what man thinks or of what a uh, suggestion from a person. It's about what God said. Are you with me? The content of the message is vitally important. And that message brings meaning to a church. Let me draw attention to one singular word in 1 Timothy 1, and I believe it's in verse 11. This word really sums up well the content of the message as Paul is describing here. It's the word sound. You ought to circle it. Put a star by it. It's in the end of verse 10, actually. It describes the doctrine or the teaching. And it says here that 
The doctrine that we hold to is sound. It's the word from where we get our word hygiene. You could literally translate this that Paul said, hold to the hygienic doctrine. You could, you could translate that and be actually technically correct. Now watch this, guys. If what we hold to and believe is, is hygienic, that means that it brings healing. It brings wholeness. Watch this word. Watch this. It's spiritually sanitary. Are you with me? I mean, when you hear the gospel, when you hear the message of the cross, when you understand the content of what Jesus Christ taught, it begins to purify and clean up things on the inside. Isn't that great news? That's not what false doctrine holds. False doctrine holds shallow content, if we can even put those words together. You know, they were about meaningless talk. Paul called this in 1 Timothy 1. He said, you know what? They just go on and on about things that you can't understand, genealogies and myths. They make them up. It's meaningless. It's endless. Two key words of false doctrine. You've been around someone like that. And all they end up with is controversy. One way to spot a false teacher in the making, watch this church, is if their, their conversations never seem to end in answers, and they always end in arguments. You know, God would have us at some point find clarity and kindness. And false teaching always ends up confusing and usually in controversy. Watch out for people who consistently want to argue forever about things that really are already settled. Paul said that, you know what? Sound teaching, the message matters because it brings meaning to a church. You are in a church where what we believe can bring wholeness and, and spiritual sanitation to your life. Amen? That's the power of the gospel. What did Paul say in Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Watch this. It is the power of God. You know what cleans up a person's life? It's not my ideas. It's not my opinion. It's not the elder's suggestion. It's not your small group leader's uh, idea. What cleans up a life is the gospel of Christ because it's packed and empowered with the content we need to make things right. That's why it's very important. Listen, listen, church, listen. It's very important that you believe the right stuff. I'm glad that some of you believe. I want to challenge you here. I talked to a lady last week in the first service. She said, Todd, I, I believe. She kept saying, I believe. And somebody said to her, oh, can I ask you a question? What do you believe? And she said, that's what I'm wondering right now. But I believe. She got saved last week, by the way, after the end of the first service. Because she had been challenged to think, you know what? Believing, I mean, that is the, the proper method. Believe, but what's the next of the verse? That's 1631. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Are you with me? Even devils believe, but they end up in hell. So it's not just a matter of believing. You've got to believe the right stuff. And maybe this morning you've walked in here and said, well, Todd, I believed all my life. Well, what did you believe all your life? It is important that you believe the right content. And that alone helps me understand why I'm really excited about uh, a new ministry here in Ankeny. I want you to hear from Tom Urban just for a second. Tom has just began to, uh, just started Seeking Truth Ministries. And Tom's heartbeat is for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And we're by no means trying to chastise or be belligerent or mean, but we do want in love and faith to reach out to people who have believed falsely about the person of Jesus Christ and the Father God, His Father God. Tom's heart is for people who have believed wrongly, who have inadequate, insufficient content. Amen? 
Uh, Tom, tell us just a few seconds about Seeking Truth Ministries. Seeking Truth Ministries is, with the help of all of you, is to try and spread the true message to the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons that come to your door every day. Um, like what uh, Marty had up on Psalm 106 where he said they forgot God. A lot of these Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons have never known our God. And that's very scary. They don't know. They've never been taught or told the true message. And what Seeking Truth Ministries is trying to do is equip you that when they do come to your door, they do interact with you daily to be able to spread the true message to them in an effective manner Mm -hmm. because the words mean things, and our words are not necessarily their words. So if we can reach them at their level with the proper words – we can take the truth in love to the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Amen. And by the way, Tom is available. If you have someone knock on your door, just say, well, come back tomorrow. I'd like to talk to you with a friend of mine. Call Tom. He'll be there. You can have an ambush yeah, actually going spir- on, right? spiritual ambush. But, uh, <laughs> um, I'm also going to be teaching a class starting September 30. It's called When the Doorbell Rings. And it's how to equip Christians to evangelize to the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. So if you're interested in seeing me, or see the equipping table out in the front. And Tom is an thank you, Tom. He's an example of uh, someone who three years ago probably would have said, "I believe," but as he was pressed by the Holy Spirit, what do you believe? He really came to the point where he said, "I I believe the right content," and he took a stand on the gospel. And Tom has been just an incredible work of God to watch. The Lord's got His hand on him in a number of ways, and He could be used to help you and your lighthouse as you deal with perhaps some JWs and Mormons. Tom, thanks for your help in that effort. You know, we have two folks in our church who were saved out of the Mormon church 18 years ago. It's just really fun watching them just grow and, and, and add such credence to the, to the desire of our church to have the right content and the right message. Here's something else that the right message does to the church. Listen very careful. I'll be done. The message matters because it brings maturity to a church. I want to draw a contrast for you from this passage as I close. You know, it's interesting that in this passage, these 13 sins that are listed, these selfish sins that are listed, they're all about uh, the sinner. In other words, it's what they do to satisfy themselves. That's the end of law keeping, by the way. False teaching, which is driven by a desire to make sure that you look adequate based on the law, ends up as a very selfish religion. It becomes all about you and how good you can look How much you have to do. The end result of all false teaching is selfish lifestyles. We begin to point at others. You're not doing it like me. You don't look like me. And comparison begins to creep in and it kills. That's the end of of, of false teaching. A very selfish lifestyle. But watch this. True sound doctrine actually matures us and teaches us not how to be selfish, but how to be selfless. And I draw your attention the two people in the first part of this chapter, Paul and Timothy. What was Paul urging Timothy to do? Stay in Ephesus. It's almost as if if you took those words and looked behind them, Paul saying, Timothy, I know you probably don't want to be there, but those people need you. That church is maybe in the beginning stages of being prey to false teaching. Timothy, it would be easier and probably better for you in some sense to go somewhere. But don't, for the sake of the church at Ephesus, stay there. Do you sense the selflessness coming out? Do you sense Paul urging them to live like Jesus? Because you have the right message. Because you have the true content. Timothy, give up your way 
for other people. What an awesome model for anyone considering ministry. Sometimes in ministry, when you do it as a vocation, you know, you have to fight hard against the career ladder, even in ministry. God forbid that anyone here ever look at first family as a career or as a stepping stone. Nothing in my heart has any, I have not had, there's no thoughts about planning first family and then, you know, seeing what I might could do later if I do this well. Nothing like that's in my heart. None of our team or our staff think in that way. Our desire, and I speak this for all of our team and all of our elders, is to serve the body of this church and teach God's word to you. That's all we desire to do. That content combined with the right conduct, which I believe is selfless in nature, if we all begin to emulate that, what God could do with an army of people who believe the right thing and behave the right way, you know, just maybe the gospel would get to the ends of the world. Amen? When what we want, what we desire is not near as important as maybe what would really best help the church. I see that in Paul and Timothy so much. In fact, Paul even said later in one of his epistles, he said, Timothy, he said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. Speaking of those who were born again. I mean, Paul, he went through everything he went through for those who were hearing the gospel. Paul and Timothy were exactly opposite of the false teachers. I want you to hear from someone who is undergoing some current change in regards to, to these things. She just got back from delivering the message, by the way, to Africa. She was part of a team that went there. Sarah McConnell, can you stand and join me up front for a minute? Sarah was in Africa for a couple of weeks last summer, and it had a big effect not just on the folks in Africa, but on you as well, didn't it? Tell us, first of all, where you went last summer and, and what, was on, what went on a little bit. Okay. Um, so we were on a trip. It was planned through Gospel Link, where we were in southern Africa and Zambia. And for the first week we were there, we um, witnessed to children in the schools where we were just openly welcomed and were able to just give a clear... Um, message of what it is to be a Christian. And then the second week we were, um, um, sorry, <laughs> the second week we were building a Bible college um, where we connected with Lewis Nelms. Yeah, uh, we are supporting Lewis Nelms and Gospel Link, and I think you got to meet the pastor that we actually support over there, right? Yeah. His name was? It's Gerald um, Cherwell. Gerald Cherwell. She actually met him and extended our love, and he extended his kindness back, so it was really neat. Thank you for doing that. Um, when you were there, about how many people heard a clear message of the gospel, you think? Um, well, probably combined between all the schools we went to, which was um, eight schools that probably had at least 500 children. And then we also set up um, the Jesus film in a village where people would just swarm to the film and watch, I would say, at least 4,000 people. Isn't that awesome? 4,000 heard a clear message about how to be made right with God. Now, out of those, hundreds were saved, no doubt. I think that's one thing that was kind of brought forth to the, uh, the hundreds that were saved. But we don't know exactly, but what we do know is who heard. And I want to thank you for uh, clearly being a part of that team that shared that message. Now, when you got back, you began to react differently to things, didn't you? Tell us about that just for a minute. Um, I guess one of the big things was just to think about all you know the ways that God's blessed our life. Um, you know, Sometimes we forget, I think, living here in America, just that we kind of do have it easy. When you see all the people that, um, you know, some people in Africa, they don't have homes. They may not even, you know, know what they're going to have for dinner. So coming back, I just, you know, was really thankful just to have a place to sleep and a home and 
food to eat every day. And it really just helped me understand that um, a way to get my finances in order. Because a lot of times, some of you that know me, I um, like to shop. Um, <laughs> it's very easy for me to, you know, justify buying, you know, something new when I realize that, you know, that's not a good use of money. And I've just gotten a lot better about, you know, really thinking about, you know, what do I need and living my life that way. So That's an awesome okay. testimony. And you're feeling kind of convicted right now, and you need to be, I tell you. She was talking to me last week. She said, Todd, I'd go to my closet, and I would think, oh, I need something new. And then I'd see things I haven't worn for months, and God's Spirit would say to me, you don't need anything new. And she would think back to Africa to her brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And isn't that neat how that message that God had put in her heart in the Bible, of course, to, to help deliver, began to mature her and brought out in her a selfless lifestyle. Isn't that neat? Sarah, I thank you for going. Thank you for being an ambassador for us to Gerald. Uh, this past summer. And if you have some more questions for Sarah, I want to talk to her further. She'll be in the lobby after just some pictures, I believe. And you can see some things. And maybe if you want to go back next year with us, you're welcome to. So, Sarah, can we thank Sarah for going to Africa last summer? Thank you very much. So I have two questions for you. We're going to wrap up now. Two questions for you. How is the message changing you? And do you find yourself trying to change the message? You see, the truth is we don't change the message. The message changes us. So if you found yourself perhaps trying to finagle with the doctrine, like, well, you know, I think maybe I could just say that just to stop. There's no way other than Jesus. That's clear cut from the Bible. Knowing that, how will that change you? Will it change your, your, what you've been putting your faith in? That content is what you should stand on. Maybe someone here this morning has been wondering what it really means to, to be right with God and how to get to heaven. This morning, I hope you've heard clearly that the only way to God is through Jesus. And by taking your stand on His death and burial and resurrection. That's the gospel. And when we believe that, God, through Jesus, saves us and puts His Spirit in us as a deposit. He's going to come and reclaim us one day. That's salvation. And it happens in the belief of the gospel. I hope this morning, if you've been wondering, well, what do I believe in that you now know? Believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. You know, maybe you've done that even this morning. Maybe while I was just kind of waxing very long up here, you were saying, God, that's what I believe. Save me. If that's you this morning, in a few minutes I'm going to have a time when you can indicate that. I trust that you'll do exactly that. And maybe you want to fill that feedback card out in your worship folder and put a note on there. Todd, I pray to be saved today. Be nothing greater in our hearts than to rejoice with you and walk with you as you begin your new life with Christ. Much like that lady in first service last week. So, so talk about your content. Examine that. Second thing is this. Let's examine your conduct. Are you living selflessly because of the message? Is it prompting you to spend your money wisely? to manage your time better, to think about what you're going to do differently in light of the message. It does that to us, doesn't it? It grows up. It brings spiritual uh, sanitation to the inside, and then it shows up on the outside. Folks, the message matters. Let's continue at First Family to cling to the faithful word. Amen.